Hey guys, welcome back to The State of It, Season 3, Episode 3. Joining us today is Billy Franklin, who has recently just returned from Russia, and the classic dad is also here too. Hey Bill, thanks for coming with us today. How are you feeling, mate? No problem. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling good. A uh, lot more relaxed after a very stressful uh, time trying to get back uh, from Russia with all the sanctions at the moment, particularly as I was fairly far in in Kazan. Uh, not many direct flights out. So, How did you manage to get journey. back? Can you describe your journey to us? Uh, well, so I initially had a flight back via Paris, uh, well, Moscow and then Paris booked. Uh, then obviously due to the sanctions, that was cancelled the night before I was meant to leave. Uh, which then involved a quick uh, meeting with a few of my friends who I was with uh, by our computers, trying to sort out how on earth we could sort of route home that was going to cost us a fortune. Um, ended up going Moscow, St. Petersburg, and then a coach to Estonia, and a long way in Tallinn Airport uh, until 7am the next morning, where we were able to get a flight home. How long did the whole trip take you, door to door? Well, I left I left uh, my apartment about 3 a.m. on Monday morning. I got home uh, to the UK at about quarter to 10 on Tuesday morning. Um, so, yeah, it was a very, very long journey. Not much sleep. Nice roundabout way. Well, I was just saying before we started talking, it's really good to have you on because you've literally just come back. So you're kind of like fresh off, fresh off the, uh, the plate here. Um, could you just take me through and uh, take us through what it was like being in Russia before the war and that transition from pre-war Russia to in-war Russia during the conflict that is going on now. What changes did you see around you in the population and, and their thoughts and feelings? Uh, yeah, so I came back to Russia on uh, February 6th. Uh, so I was only out there for a few weeks this time. Obviously, I'd been in there last term as well, where there wasn't really as much talk going on about it. Uh, obviously, by the time I got there this time, it was very much in back of people's minds. But there was a massive, there's definitely a massive sense of no one thought that war would be possible. No one thought that uh, Putin would ever want to go to war with Ukraine, purely, well, mostly because of the um, cultural and religious links between Russia and Ukraine and how so many people there had family there. They just couldn't really see it as a possibility. He brought it up to Russian people. They'd sort of uh, just tell you to forget about it it's not real none of it's real um it should be over in you know a matter of weeks things will calm down uh then i remember the the day where russia actually fully fully invaded uh i was uh, going out in the evening with a few of my mates and the mood in the town was at a massive massive low um there's a massive sense of shock really uh no one sort of expected it to happen everyone was sort of saying that all this this news of that being a potential war, potential invasion, couldn't possibly be true. And once it did happen, there was just yeah, shock, sadness. People worried about their fa family and friends because you talk to local people there and you struggle to find someone who didn't at least know someone in Ukraine who they were concerned about, who re really were worried about. And yeah, it was um, it was quite a depressing time really by the end to be there. Um, and I've got loads of people at home obviously messaging me, asking me if I'm safe obviously because of what they're reading about Russia in the uh, news. And I was, I did feel really safe. Um, there was definitely an increased police presence and stuff, but especially in Kazan, there wasn't really that much protesting and stuff going on because of the fact they are, they are known to have quite a uh, brutal police force. So I think that's basically deterred people. Um, but yeah, it was, it was scary in terms of 
people definitely were worried about what was yet to come uh, with sanctions and everything. Uh, it was very, the last few days in particular were quite stressful because you saw people trying to withdraw money from banks, um, not knowing of all these sort of financial uh, sanctions coming in, not knowing what their future really entailed for them. Um, and you know, we're being told as well by our university to go to the banks, withdraw as much money as possible to make sure that you're fine getting home. Then at the same time, it's quite hard to you know, queue up for an ATM in a country where these people are withdrawing money for their livelihoods. Whereas I'm withdrawing money to just in case I need it on the way home, which seemed a bit selfish, to be honest. Um, yeah. If you could could judge the mood um, of of the people around you in Kazan just before you left, would you say that they were, you know, against the war, for the war? If you could give a number out of ten, how many people would you say were for or against the war? Um, well, it's difficult to say with uh, how many people, the sort of people I was exposed to. Um, whereas, so I'd initially, especially at the start, I was thinking that basically almost everyone was really against the war. Uh, all these people you talk to on the street and in general um, would just say that they're very anti, can't really believe it's happened. And you, so I, I probably put it at about a six or a seven because once you really go into it and people who we were staying with host families and stuff and who with these are sort of the people who are around in their 60s, 70s, um, the group who are more likely to be in favour of Putin and believe what they read and what they see on the news. Uh, between that sort of population, they're all quite supportive. And I was hearing um, lots of stories when I was travelling home with my mates about their host families and how um, they was quite quite a lot of them were very, very pro-war, but and some of them even believed that there wasn't a war at all and it was all fake. Um, but it was it was interesting to hear sort of different perspectives. Um, but it, especially the younger population, they're obviously massively, massively against it. Um, but there's not much they really feel they can do, which I guess sort of adds to the feeling of sort of depression and hopelessness. Uh, because you know, whilst loads of people in Moscow and St. Petersburg are all out protesting, there's a sense of inevitability with that that you probably are going to get arrested, and you're really putting your livelihood, uh, your general quality of life at risk by doing something like that. Um, I was seeing in the uh, in Kazan as we were leaving so the last few days, there were basically riot police at the ready just in case anything kicked off. Um, the only protest that I actually saw was um, a single protest for a man holding up a communist flag and a sign saying we must all support Putin, um, along with some other sort of propaganda sort of slogans. Um, but people were going up to him and uh, I guess sort of mildly having a go as much as they could uh, with basically they were being watched by police as well so they couldn't really I guess go into them that much uh, but they were def there was definitely a sort of response and people were taking pictures of this guy people definitely were disapproving of him particularly obviously the younger populations walking past but yeah, it just depends who you speak to really you have the older generation and the younger generation now there's definitely a, a very big divide between the views on the war. That's I think that's really, really fascinating. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, Winnie. I think oh, that's really fascinating that it's a, a generational issue between the generation that remember the USSR like Putin and the generation that aspires to be or aspired to be free and democratic and assume the you know the relationships and the dynamics and social values of the West. So that's, it, that's a really powerful observation yeah. that you just made. And how many of those younger people have since tried to get out of Russia as they realized the doors were closing? Uh, I don't haven't really heard too much about uh, them trying to get out as much. I think there's not really uh, well, it's, it's difficult to get out in the first place at the moment. 
Um, I think obviously it's their, it's their home there, despite the fact that they are anti-war. They are still, I think, mostly proud Russians, um, and they want to stay in their um, in their homeland. There's not really been a, a massive sort of you know, idea that it's time for all of us to get out because basically there's not really anywhere for them to go. Um, all these, a lot of people, these people have relatives in places like Ukraine, which again they wouldn't go to right now. So yeah, there wasn't really much of this panic. And on this um, the generation divide. Whilst I definitely say this there is a big thing, I think it's also the old generations had this sort of more loyalty to Putin due to the fact that obviously post-Soviet Union in the 90s, when they're going through a economic crisis in Russia, I think a lot of them credit getting out of that to Putin himself. And they have the sort of this blind loyalty uh, where they, tr they have this sort of instilled trust because of the fact he got them, well, they see that he got him, they got the, he got them out of that scenario. Um, but it's not all older people as well. There are a lot of older people who uh, are definitely uh, on the side of this war is a terrible, terrible thing. And they don't believe that um, Putin's lost his mind, essentially. I was talking to my um, host um, on WhatsApp, uh, from host we had in St. Petersburg, and she can tell she's definitely very, very upset about it all. And they, they seem a bit scared about what's to come as well. So yeah, it's, it's, whilst it's multi-generational, um, there is definitely sort of, there are many, many anomalies to that. I mean, uh, sorry to interrupt again. I mean, it's a, you were there at the moment when any sort of pretense that a democracy or freedoms or liberal dynamics sort of coexisted for a time under Putin as if to keep the people happy have disappeared. And it really reminds me of, there's a section in Breaking the Code of History which essentially is called polarization and polarization is how you basically move your society from a general position of two perspectives peace and war into one where only war occupies and the story of the nazis is exactly that there were good germans that we forget about in the 30s in the weimar republic who believed in western values who you know believed in the sense of christian relatively goodness and they were eradicated removed pushed out over a period of time initially with the brown shirts and subsequently as hitler took complete control and you ended up with a society that was completely polarized and one of the things that that's sort of absent for for putin to wage his war against nato because uh, as many of my uh, my work suggests ukraine is the first stepping stone in a full-scale war against nato is how you polarize the russian population to act in in favor of his cause and in that process what you've really done in an accelerated fashion now is you've closed the doors you've basically told everyone you will accept and if you won't you are removed eradicated as hitler did to the german people who resisted so we're looking at a polarized russian society the few who are lucky got out and the rest are suppressed and there is no hope of any kind of uprising or way of removing him because he has an iron control over russia and that, yeah. you, you were there at that last moment with the vestige of of looking like there was a possibility. And I think with it, we should really think in the West, our hope that he's going to be removed is absolutely reduced to zero. We're now facing an implacable enemy that's going to be increasingly fed a set of PR via the, 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 the official news channels, which basically polarizes them. And now he can release a number of deaths because he can say those nasty Nazis in Ukraine essentially did this yeah. to us and NATO's coming for us too. 
So, so uh, you were there at a watershed moment, which makes your real, you know, actual story really fascinating. If I can just jump in there very quickly, Dad, we will come to you very, very soon to discuss your your thoughts on the future. But Billy, very quickly um, from you, what were your experiences with state control? Uh, we've already, talked, you know, discussed police control, riot police being present. What were your experiences outside of the police and and their their presence and actions, as in you know social media, newspapers? What were they like at the time of the war's outbreak? Well, not much really changed to be honest. Um, obviously there was uh, the only difference sort of once uh, war and started to break out was that uh, things like Facebook and stuff started to be slowed down more. So you sort of had to use VPN if you want to use anything like Facebook. Uh, Twitter had already was already slowed down before we even got there um and but yeah, in terms of day-to-day life you didn't really feel it it's sort of like being again it, it's just like being in any other country really living there day to day um and the only thing we noticed near the end was this increase in police presence when we're walking past them we try not to speak english just in case of being sort of uh, pulled over and just have your documents checked not because we're necessarily scared anything would happen but more because it's just a bit of an inconvenience uh, having to get all your documents out and if you don't have them potentially having to go to the police station which in itself is rather scary um but i didn't really feel any sort of um massive state control on me whilst i was around there i, I mean i think obviously from a western point of view i think we definitely look at somewhere like russia um, and we are obviously aware of all these sort of the state control that they have. But actually, while you're, when you're there living day to day, you just don't feel it as much. And the people who are there are used to sort of the things like police presence as well. So, yeah. Dad, moving forward, what do you think is in store in the near future for Russia internally, politically, economically and socially? Uh it's a sad perspective because it's total control. Putin, in my opinion, Ukraine is the first stepping stone of a uh, continuation of a war, which includes um, ultimately Finland, the Baltic states, and he has built an alliance with China. So as China starts to move on Taiwan and South Korea, America is going to be distracted and you'll start to see the coordination process. So his move towards martial martial law in effect is his his desire to emulate Xi who has a very similar sense of power within China and the result of that is just like Hitler's total control over the German people we are now implacably facing an enemy and the sad thing is there are a terrible tragedy there are Ukrainians dying defending their country and the innocents being killed but there are soldiers in the Russian army who don't want to be there, who never would have chosen to fight, who found themselves lied to, manipulated, and now they're fighting for their survival against another organization who's fighting for its survival. And within that, there is a total tragedy. And yet, you know, the West and Ukraine is now in a battle for absolute existence. Make no mistake about it. When we talk about the idea that Putin's a war criminal, it brings with it total hubris. Because once you admit he's a war criminal, you, you admit you're at war and you've got to win the war to bring him to justice. At the moment, we're failing to recognize it's our war. Russia knows it's our war because we fund Ukraine through weapons and support in every single way. We seem to think that that protects us. So I think we're in the West living a very delusionary encounter, thinking that Russians in the street will have a chance. They don't. 
There is no protesting. Maybe there might be resistance movements in time, but I doubt it. Because the, the Russian people are used to being subdued from Stalin to communism. They don't have that streak of individuality. And those that did protest with, with Navalny. And so people say to me, you know, do you think Putin will get bumped off? And my answer is, if you go back and you look at Hitler with the Val Operation Valkyrie with Van Stoffenberg, essentially because that briefcase ended up on the wrong side of the table leg, Hitler survived. Thousands of German officers with any sympathy for that plot and you know, antagonism against Hitler died in the process. And from that moment until the end of the bunker, not a single entity managed to resist him because they all died in that pooch, that removal. And so the Navani issue would have removed any people that prepared to stand up. And now the tightening of controls, Putin's separation from the people he leads up following COVID make him practically invulnerable. So I think we need to give up the idea it's going to stop from the inside and recognize that we're going to have to confront it from the outside. And that's what, really sad. It's a tragedy for, for Russians as well as the Ukrainians. What do you think the economic future of Russia is looking like? Because right now it's looking pretty desperate. Sanctions are being imposed well, that, are, that are really starting to hit harder. Look, so what's, what's the future hold for that? So look, I think we've got to really, sanctions are not going to do the job. All sanctions did was, in some ways, he was prepared for them. Maybe he left some of his central Russian central banks' money in other central banks and forgot the piggy bank might close its doors. But basically, he knew that by the time he was committing the atrocities in Ukraine, which our, our previous you know um, State of It podcast described as a way of pacifying Ukraine once and for all and definitively, that the West would polarize against him. And so basically, that's to be expected. We're congratulating ourselves. He knew that. So essentially, he created also an economic alliance with, with, with China, and that economic alliance is his, his supplies, his commodities, his resources will be sold to China in a unique partnership, and they will compensate. And yeah, there's always a dip when you change your, your, your sales chains and you shift them somewhere else. But right now, he's moved to a wartime economy, polarizing his society to support him, removing any dissidents in any shape or form. And next, after he finishes Ukraine, he's coming for another part of the NATO war. Looking at society in Russia, are there, are there any changes that will be wrought? Or do you think it'll just remain the same? And Bill, feel free to jump in here because you've had first-hand experience. Do you think uh, Russian society I, I, will, will, do, will, will change in any way at all? Or will it just kind of amble on as it is? I think it's going to revert to that period in, in Stalin's period, governed by fear, control, authoritarianism. I mean, it's impossible to comprehend what that's like. But the Russian people have had a long history of being subjected to that kind of leadership. So they, they, in a strange way, I think there's, I make an argument in my theory of collective human systems that, that they are a land people and therefore they tend to have far more linear genes and lateral genes. And the result is they accept hierarchy more readily than we would. And those people that don't and try to make the transformation, they've been eradicated, ejected or suppressed. So I'm afraid I, I think that Russia has now reverted to oh, Stalin Russia or the USSR. Bill, do you get I'd a sense of that? I, felt, I definitely did feel a slight shift um, in the time I was there. I mean, these, you've got to bear in mind with uh, on protests and stuff, whilst, you know, say, because where I was in Kazan, there wasn't really much like major protesting going on, again, out of fear of the police state. Um, you've got, you've got um, in, in Moscow and in St. Petersburg, and other major cities in Russia, there were major, major protests. And these people who are going out well in the knowledge of the fact that they 
will likely be arrested. You can be arrested for literally just walking past protests. Um, and I, I had friends who were you know, sending me videos of who were in St. Petersburg, sending me videos of these protests. I'm telling you, you know, get inside because you don't know what's going to happen. If you're just even seen near these, especially as a foreigner, you're in trouble. Um, but people do still stand up to fight the fact that they know there's inevitability of what's going to happen to them. Um, I did start to feel that there was this sort of more of an anti-Putin rhetoric that I've ever heard in Russia before in some recent years. And I was watching uh, TV interviews online of people saying things like death to Putin on camera uh, with their faces in it. Um, it's almost but people seem to like, they didn't really care as much anymore. But Billy, but the, Billy the, the, pro the problem with that and they're brave, bold souls, mm. but inevitably those are the individuals that create the potential for future change but by enacting overtly against a state that's become a police state a total police state they are guaranteed to be locked up eradicated or killed yeah. so yeah, strangely enough the, the only way you you can survive is by, by becoming covert and it essentially so so survival for resistance is going to have to go underground and yeah, at the moment it, it's yeah. immobilized is the um whilst i'm sort of get these feelings of uh people are starting to sort of stand up a little bit. I, again, as you were saying, I see no way of this sort of Putin being removed from the inside because whilst, yes, these protests and stuff are going on, people are just being put in prison and eventually they'll probably die out because the morale of the people will, will and, inevitably drop off and being, you know, being arrested over and over again. We're, we'll see the death sentence return for, you know, winking at a police policeman. It's going to get, that place is... The harder it gets for Putin to fight his wars, hold his population down, the more draconian his suppression process will be. And, you know, if you just go back to how Stalin Stalin ruled by total fear, I keep thinking about uh, Zhukov, who was his great general on the Eastern Front. And and Zhukov literally used to wet himself in the, in the presence of Stalin. He was so scared of what would happen. And I'm convinced that Putin has modelled his behavioural patterns on Stalin. He's a, he, you know, he's a complete sociopath. A psychopath he has no conscience just like stalin he's killing hundreds of thousands of people to be i'm afraid of the cities enclosed so it's fear all around and uh it's you know it's uh the most horrible thing to watch a country that was aspiring to be more and essentially now suppressed and see that jackboot spread across from ukraine and what's going on but i think we in the west have to wake up that this story doesn't have a happy ending until we learn to stand up to this bully and are prepared to literally go toe to toe with him until we do that it's not going to stop and just by letting ukraine you know fall isn't going to save us because it's going to be finland next or the baltic states and somewhere along that line we're going to have to call his bluff with nuclear weapons and be prepared to use them ourselves it's the only way out of this and we need to do it before the Chinese start to degrade American influence in the in the Indian Pacific area, because then you'll be even more emboldened. Dad, you were talking earlier before this this podcast about war crimes. Recently, there's been footage released I've seen it of cluster bomb strikes, very obvious cluster bomb strikes in Ukrainian cities. There have been vacuum bombs used. The Geneva Conventions seem to not really hold as you know, weight in in this war and as rules often seem to go out the window in war what do you think of these war crimes what's your perspective on them what impact will they have well look um the eastern front in the second world war was the most savage front probably in history it was truly brutal and um 
there is a history in that region of conducting war with extreme brutality and one that um, Putin has now you know, taken the mantle of. Um, our ineffectiveness in um, finding a way of deterring Putin, reading his signals, even incorporating you know, Ukraine into NATO before it was attacked or offering assistance before that moment is going to be something that we have going to have a wrestle with for decades to come if we survive what is really World War Three. And I think that this massive outcry may be started with people thinking that they might contain Putin and that it will be like Georgia or Crimea. But they little understood that this is not like it. There isn't going to be a pause afterwards and a normalization. I watched Putin asking for normalization. It's just another manipulation to make us hope that after this we'll be left alone. We're not going to be left alone. And when you call someone a war criminal, you give them zero incentive to surrender to you or normalize because you ask them to come to The Hague and be indicted. So in the process of recognizing it, this person's risk rewards completely change. And as he's ahead of the state, he's not going to stop. So it's very simple. If you call someone a war criminal when they're attacking your society, you need to win the war before you can indict them. So it's completely back to front that we're jumping up and down. And I think it's partly a sort of collective guilt that we fail to protect at this whole process, standing back and saying, well, it's not us. It's not us. Oh, he's got to be a war criminal. We'll get him later on. The truth is we're not going to get him later on because we need to act. We need to stand up because we're next. So I, I think in some ways it's a commentary on our complete failure as a Western society to do anything to stop this. And it completely represents a lack of reality that for a war criminal, you need to fight the war to bring him and you need to win the war before you can actually call him to judgment. I think that is a very powerful and poignant message. And I think we're going to end it there. So thank you so much for joining us, Bill. Really, really appreciate it and your inside knowledge on Russia. And Dad, as always, thank you for being here. Thank you, Bill, for joining us. It's a really interesting insight into a moment in history that we will look back on. I think, you know, Putin's Putin's accelerated the Nazization of Germany and done it sort of overnight, overnight. But that system has been with humanity for a long time. And hold hold dearly what you saw before the change because hopefully somewhere in the future it might re be reignited well thank you guys and that's it